in the end, like many of the other real-world asset tokenization use cases, you're talking about trying to increase the utility of the asset. And if you have it in a tokenized version, you can increase the automation through smart contracts and things of that nature. Hey, listeners, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Your support helps us reach more listeners and bring you more exciting content in the future. Hello, and welcome to The Crypto Brief, a podcast from Fidelity Center for Applied Technology. Every week, we get together to discuss current events and trends in blockchain technology, tokenization, DeFi, NFTs, mining, and related aspects of the crypto ecosystem. I'm your co-host, Ryan Stubbe, Director of Bitcoin Mining, and I'm joined by Jason Ward, Head of the Blockchain Incubator, Parth Gargava, Product Architect with Fidelity Labs, and Jack Newrider, Research Analyst with Fidelity Digital Assets. Before we begin, just a friendly reminder that this discussion is for educational purposes only and should not be viewed as investment advice or a recommendation for any security or asset. The views expressed are those of the co-hosts and not necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. As we all know, crypto as an asset class is highly volatile, can become illiquid at any time, and is only for those investors with a high risk tolerance. Let's dive into what's been happening recently. Parth and Jack, it's good to see you guys. I, uh, I haven't seen you guys in person for a while until last week, and uh, it was nice to bump into you both. Yeah, it's good to be back. It's been a while. Jason, I saw you socializing with a lot of crypto folks in Boston. What, what was going on? Uh, well, last week was Boston FinTech Week, and uh, as luck would have it, uh, both FCAT uh, Fidelity Center for Applied Technology and Fidelity Labs had gotten together co-sponsor an event to uh, bring members of the community together and just provide a great networking reception. So lots of interesting events happening last week um, across the city. But yeah, it was, a, it, was a, it was an energizing week. Ryan picked the wrong week to be out of town on vacation. So he's digging out from a thousand or plus emails right now and he'll join us, I think, next week. But, um, but it, was, it was great. And, you know, one of the cool things about being at Fidelity is the opportunity to engage and, and people coming in from the outside. And we spoke to a lot of interesting projects and people pitching ideas. And um, I found myself in the middle of it thinking, ah, oh, this is what life was like prior to 2020. And the community is really coming back strong. So it was, it was um, really good in that respect. I didn't know how big of a deal the, the FinTech week is for Boston folks. It's uh, it's actually pretty massive. I I had I, I bumped into my younger brother in the same in the same event. <laughs> I was like, man, what what are you doing here? So, <laughs> so. <laughs> that's awesome. So yeah, it's really big. People come from all over. Um, you know, Boston's a, a great innovative tech hub, and when you see the 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 number of different projects that are going on, you see the quality of the people that were coming in. I know a lot of the events were hosted um, by the the Boston Federal Reserve Bank. So, you know, saw uh, TradFi, DeFi companies, um, some folks working on um, central bank digital currencies, other working on asset tokenization, uh, and then just all the normal fintech things. How do you get education and access to investments to people who may not typically get exposure? Uh, So it really uh, sort of an inspiring week. As we want to sort of pivot in and talk about some of the stories, want to come back to a, a fan favorite part of the uh, podcast and Parth, I want to ask you, what uh, what did you try last week, if anything, besides uh, besides FinTech Week? <laughs> so so I know we're going to talk about 
uh, tokenization platforms and tokenized assets. So I'm going to stay topical. But I finally toyed around with the idea of permission networks uh, to see what the next level of financial services could look like. And uh, believe me, it wasn't it wasn't fun to put my driver's license in for for a blockchain protocol. But I thought, you know what, I want to know. It's strictly experimental. And uh, I have this strong conviction loosely held on how tokenized public assets like stocks or bonds will trade far more heavily in DeFi compared to tokenized private uh, private assets like real estate or private equity. So whenever we've spoken about tokenization in the past, the value proposition for getting tokenized assets was to add liquidity to things which do not which are not as liquid, right? So think about real estate, private debt, or even art. But it seems like there's a lot of friction to get there, and we'll discuss more about it in today's episode. But this week I tried a permissioned DeFi platform called Soma Finance, where you can trade tokenized public equity. So imagine a Uniswap-like experience, but you could buy Tesla shares with your USDC, or you could buy Google shares with your USDC. So if you're an investor or even a crypto native asset manager, you get access to crypto assets, but also public equities, bonds, all in an on-chain uh, composable way. So it's it's still an experiment, but it was worth looking into uh, for me. What do you I, guys think? I I think I heard you wrong. D did you say permissioned network? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I took a shower right after it. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> it was fun because I I feel like it's uh you kind of want to know what's next for financial services, and I, I want to kind of I'll I'll, I'll explain how uh, Soma Finance worked. But step one, you have to pass through a KYC AML check. And so you create a new wallet or you could port an existing one. Uh, in my case, I, I created a fresh Rabi wallet, which is like MetaMask. And so Soma Finance does not custody user assets, but these wallets are ring fenced, which is which I believe is Jason's favorite word. So these wallets are ring fenced by the KYC AML process. And step two is this platform offers tokenized representation of Meta Tesla, Apple, Amazon, Google. So users can swap Bitcoin, ETH, or USDC for these uh, public equities. Um, so that's that's the experience for me. Can you trade these off hours or is it only during market hours? So that's a, that's a great question. So whenever you decide to buy new assets with your USDC or with your USD, it's called minting a new share, right? So you mint, you get a new share, you port it onto the platform. But you can trade uh, after 5 p.m. as well or after the market's closed uh, with other peers on the platform. I would imagine it becomes far less liquid during those off hours. Yeah, it does. I, I, I was, yeah, I, I did a trade at 2 p.m., so it was, it was fine then. But uh, the idea was giving a Uniswap-like experience in one single place to trade crypto, but also trading public assets. So, Jack, I, I, I know where you're going with asking about liquidity, but... Um, it is interesting, right? Because the question becomes, how do you, how do you actually realize price discovery when you're trading an asset? And I'll call this a synthetic asset representation or a digital twin. Um, when the market is not active in the uh, traditional equity markets, when those you'd see higher volume of transactions. Um, so Jack, how do you, any thoughts on what, what price discovery might be like or what it, some of the considerations might be that people have to think about. Yeah, what was the uh, platform? Was it called Mirror? 
on Luna. Do you guys remember? That was doing this. And then like the I think they shut it down because the SEC or, or one of the regulatory agencies uh, had sort of tapped them on the shoulder. Um, I think it's interesting, right? If you're off hours, if you get material information that gets released to the public around one of these companies, um, the market ultimately has no way of reflecting that until Monday morning. If it happens over the weekend or on a holiday, you don't know until you know, futures open at night and then the, the large equity indices can reflect some of that new information. Um, but I, I think if you start to get platforms like these become large enough and liquid enough, then all of a sudden you start to have these markets like reflecting what public equities will do at you know 930 when they open. Um, and then someday, at some point, I think you do you get you know real time trading around the clock, or are futures more widely available? Like it probably changes the structure of traditional markets eventually. But right now, like Parth said, like these are small platforms happening in walled gardens. Yeah, it's almost like they're uh, they're portals to what a future could look like. And you know, I think about right now we're having this discussion. It's during earnings season, so and you see how you know. Prices may move after hours as, as companies are sharing information in, in forward-looking commentary. So I, I do think it could be fascinating. We think about the, the volume of transactions that occur at the open of a market and how many uh, trading activities are driven based on um, interpretation of headlines. And you know, if you could be doing that 24-7, that could be um, – it, it could be very interesting because without the liquidity, you could see much wider swings in terms of volatility. So I, I do think that it's really more of the possible as opposed to the probable uh, in the short term. But I, I do think it's a great representation of how the technology can empower users to um, to adjust to changing conditions outside of market hours, even on yeah. a small scale. I, I think the value proposition is not trading after hours, but also getting exposure to uh, to public equities. Um, and so even in this case, even though Soma Finance is headquartered in Hong Kong, but they are reg registered with the SEC as a broker dealer uh, through this, this company called Tritorian Capital, which is the platform's uh, broker dealer affiliate. But it's a, it's a fun, uh, fun experiment to, uh, to look out for. Cool. So maybe what we can do is we can take that as a foundation and build on that. So some other other news that was hitting headlines last week was related to uh, JP Morgan's Onyx blockchain. And they had announced that in partnership with BlackRock, uh, BlackRock money market fund shares had been tokenized and then they were utilized to collateralize a derivative transaction between Barclays and BlackRock. So what do we really mean by that? Well, my interpretation is using JP Morgan's token collateralization network or TCN, a digital twin of BlackRock money fund shares was minted. And then the ownership of those tokenized money fund shares was pushed into a wallet for the benefit of, say, Barclays, if Barclays was the counterparty that was being secured with the collateral. So... You might say, okay, well, why would you use a tokenized money fund for collateral? Why not use a treasury? Well, the reality is you can do both. Um, you know, the tokenized money fund collateral use case is interesting because it addresses some of those things that we just talked about in terms of after hours volatility or maybe speed in which somebody can, can react. 
So, uh, you know, putting for a moment the, the JPM and BlackRock announcement aside, you know, we're basically here 15 months, almost to the day of sort of shaking out of the, the, the fog that occurred in, on the heels of the Lehman bankruptcy. And entities were still trying to figure out whom had exposure to whom and how did they wind up unwinding that exposure. And a lot of the collateral at the time was related to treasuries. And in the wake of that situation, we saw some delays in settlements of treasuries. You know, the most liquid instrument that's used, um, you know, considered to be the risk-free rate of return benchmark. But because assets could be rehypothecated, there was extended windows of settlement to allow for more treasury transactions to settle in order to, to um, free up some of the proverbial logjam in the settlement system. And when I think about things like intraday margin calls, meaning you know, I, I don't wait for tomorrow to cover my risk for, that I'm seeing today. Something like a tokenized asset, whether it be a stable coin, a treasury, or even tokenized fiat um, or money market fund, they could allow for more timely margin call and, and margin call settlement uh, in the future. So it's interesting. I think it's one of many examples of tokenized real world assets that we're seeing. But when when you take a step back, really all this is again in in my you know to simplify it, it's showing automation. You know, if you could use smart contracts to drive the margin call initiation and margin call settlement process, then you could be managing your risk much more timely than you might if you're waiting for settlement windows in markets around the world and waiting for humans or even other platforms to uh, initiate a margin call. So, so Jason, correct me if I'm wrong, but the value proposition that you have in your mind is near like instant settlement, right? But I, I think there's more to it because I, if oh, I, if you, if you take the example of Onyx, which is a, which is a permission blockchain for financial institutions for, which is built by JP Morgan, it has processed close to uh, $900 billion worth of assets. And the value proposition of Onyx is to build applications on top so that they can get cheaper access to liquidity intraday or intraday. And I'll, I want to I wanna maybe explain how, and I, I want you to correct me if I'm wrong here, but JP Morgan has found use cases to use blockchain to settle intraday. And I'm sure you can explain this better, but when you look at a repo or a repurchase agreement, that's like a short-term loan of a security, like a, like a government bond, but it's really hard for a repo to settle on the same day since you're dealing with multiple ledgers, different systems, uh, different spreadsheets. And so, so I, yeah, part of that, I'd say it maybe a little bit differently, you know, in terms, and sorry to, to cut you off, but actually most repos do settle same day. So um, broker dealers typically fund their overnight operations by borrowing money from entities that are long cash. And what they do is they pledge collateral. So the, the borrow is the cash, the pledge is the security collateral. And there are some large clearing banks that help facilitate that um, delivery versus payment, if you will, to, to make sure that, that transaction can happen the same day. But you have to have the cash at that bank to settle. And securities have to be free and clear at that bank to settle. So there's a time crunch often that occurs at the very end of the day, uh, say between 5.30 and 6 p.m., 
where you've got large wires moving across the Fed wire system to get them to the, the settlement banks. And then for the entities that want to use that cash somewhere else in the world, they're trying to also relay the wire once it's been confirmed at the clearing bank to whatever location they need that, that cash to be able to operate. So you've got very high value, high volume, and a very small window. So in some ways, that's why if you can extend the window because you're now using a tokenized asset, then you can take some of the pressure off there. But you mentioned intraday. And what really gets interesting is, you know, prior to the Lehman bankruptcy, if a party were, uh, if two parties entered into a, an overnight repo, say a tri-party repo, where you have a custodian in the middle, that custodian was the party that made sure that the security was encumbered, the collateral was encumbered, and the cash was released. But the custodian would provide intraday liquidity uh, to allow for the lender of cash to have use of the cash at the beginning of the day. And the borrower of cash would need to make sure that they had repaid by the end of the day or rolled the transaction. So that bank incurred an intraday credit. And after Lehman, we saw a change in the repo market, so it locked up 24 hours. So it acted almost like a bilateral agreement where the cash borrower and the cash lender could only uh, roll the transaction once the, the repayment had occurred or once a settlement had occurred. There was no more risk being borne by the tri-party custodian, but they are still operating as the facilitator in, in selling that. So when we talk about JP Morgan Onyx and building on top of it, it's very similar to their other custody systems, their broker-dealer services type of businesses. And I think just to be fair, um, other entities like Broadridge had already um, worked on tokenization of repo. The question is, are both the cash and the security represented as tokens? And in this case, it's not quite clear to me whether or not the cash is. They could be using that JPM coin digital dollar representation for intra-bank activity recording. Um, but they, they do have a representation of cash. And now they have a representation of collateral. So they seemingly they would be able to make it a more effective, uh, timely process. So you're saying the value proposition here is that you can do this trade in a smart contract, which gives you really precise rules on when these funds will be settled instead of having all that settlement in that small window you were talking about initially. You could do that, but you also extend the window. So if we say somebody had um, exposure to a counterparty and overnight they got news that the counterparty was facing some difficulty, they could automatically call for margin in the overnight period. And if the, the party that was securing the lender had tokenized money fund shares or tokenized anything else, they could send it and pledge that as collateral so that the risk window of the borrower can be reduced. So we talked about repo. It could be any type of longer duration. Um, you know, also post Lehman crisis, you saw that brokers were pushed to borrow for longer terms through something called the net stable funding ratio. And you had money funds who were pushed to be shorter duration, meaning they, they could have less long-term exposure. They need to have shorter maturities to maintain liquidity to fund any redemptions of the money fund shareholders. And I realize this is a lot about operational mechanics. So I'll zoom back out for a minute. This makes it potentially a more efficient risk management model for both the lender and the borrower. 
And because of that, they could see improvements in terms of liquidity. They might also be able to borrow assets or borrow cash for shorter periods. It might not be a 24-hour lockup. It could be a six-hour lockup or something along those lines. But in the end, like many of the other real-world asset tokenization use cases, you're talking about trying to increase the utility of the asset. And if you have it in a tokenized version, you can increase the automation through smart contracts and, and things of that nature. Makes sense. And so maybe when you talk about the lender and the borrower, you have uh, asset managers who are also looking towards tokenizing money market funds. And, and the reason why they would do that is because they want to provide utility to their investors, like you said, right? So people who are looking to pledge those shares as collateral instead of redeeming out of that fund, going out to get access to cash and using that cash as collateral, they can now, because of smart contracts, the investors can stay invested and use those shares as collateral. So it's it's cost savings, but it's also user stickiness for an asset manager, which is, I know, a, a cost. It's it's a really it's a really good point. And whether or not they use smart contracts might be irrelevant. You know, some could just have a tokenized money fund and and move it from one account to another. So for the benefit of the 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 lender, as opposed to when the loan is over, they can move it back to the benefit of the uh, borrower who doesn't have exposure. But you're right. When an asset manager manages funds and they need to maintain liquidity for any incoming redemption requests, then they think about how they manage the portfolio. So there's uh, maturity considerations to the assets that they would invest in. And if you were to um, forecast that people could utilize the shares for different purposes and not have to sell them in order to raise cash to buy a treasury to pledge as collateral, in, in some ways, you're, you're minimizing the potential for dilution, meaning that, like any drag of performance on a fund because you've, you're maintaining a higher balance. And again, I'm not a portfolio manager. Let me be very clear. I, I do understand this. But you know, when it comes down to it, if I'm the owner of the money fund share, when I sell, I'm out of the market. I'm no longer earning income. So I might buy a treasury in order to pledge the treasury so at least I can earn income. But now I could have a, a cost basis and I could be realizing a gain or loss. It becomes more complicated where is if I had the money fund, and again, why a money fund and not some other asset? Frankly, you, you're expecting the money market fund is going to maintain the dollar peg. And if you look at the treasury markets as they've performed over the past year, you may see volatility in the underlying treasury bill itself or note or bond that actually could end up meaning you hold a longer dated bond, if yields are going up, you might actually have to acquire new treasuries or more treasury um, outstanding in order to maintain the collateral level that you're required. So by using a money fund as opposed to a treasury, you could, in theory, insulate yourself from price volatility of the underlying holding of a treasury, for example. Jack, I, I know this is a some of the area that you've got a, probably some thoughts on too. So try to pull you back into the conversation. No, no, you. Get, I was, you know, listening to you guys go back and forth. That was good. I, it's a continued like trend that we'll see is the fact that you have public blockchains, Bitcoin and Ethereum that exist, and the value proposition it come stems from their decentralization, and that's like to 
to you know the general public is an investable theme, whether or not it makes sense, obviously, um, and whether or not it succeeds or fails is its own thing. And then you have also like just financial services that's creating, whether it be consortiums or completely permissioned blockchains internally to increase like collateral efficiency like you guys are talking about here or their risk management on you know whatever these overnight uh, arrangements or loans and, and lending um, and I think it's a little bit ironic that like Bitcoin born out of the financial crisis and you were talking about you know how some of these applications of the blockchain uh, at the moment are trying to fix issues you know, that, that stemmed or, or were seen during the financial crisis. And it's like, I don't think that's what Bitcoin had in mind originally was like, hey, use this underlying technology and centralize it. But yet it is kind of being used that way. While Bitcoin exists in its own right as a, a trend, uh, there's also, you know, the, the application of blockchains uh, to fi- traditional centralized financial service providers that's going to continue, it seems. Yeah, I, I want to go back to how we were talking about RWAs before this, and it goes back to your point around demand, Jack. But initially, I remember there was a lot of excitement to tokenize real estate or art or things which are not liquid. Uh, but I now we saw that there's barely any demand for these products. Like no one's going like, ah, oh, if if only I could tokenize this skyscraper, I would buy like parts of that skyscraper, right? <laughs> like no one's doing that. And so so if you look at the last two years, the, the Fed has been raising interest rates. The incentives to take risk has slightly gone down because, well, you could do government bonds. But the demand right now in DeFi is for low risk, uh, highly liquid sources of yield, right? And that's why you want, you have a demand for having these treasuries or T-bills come on chain because that's what people want to hold on, on the blockchain, right? So I, I guess my point is there's a demand uh, when there's a demand, you'll automatically see new products built around those. And uh, and I think you're seeing examples of bigger companies like JP Morgan, or if you look at Ondo Finance, which is a DeFi platform for getting uh, short-term government bonds, you have these tokenized versions of short-term government bonds in the market where people can borrow, uh, borrow against it as well. So that's some DeFi innovation in my head. The second point which I want to make is... Uh, I'm trying. I'm kind of trying to track my progress, but just the fact that I'm able to hold a conversation with Jason on on these on this topic itself is like a a win for me because I'm like, well, that's it's uh it's 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 fascinating because I I could not imagine doing that uh, a year ago. <laughs> yeah, no, that that's great. Um, I I do think you make a good point in the fact that like higher yields have meant that people have interest, especially on chain. To get access, like relative to holding a stable coin or what effectively amounts to uh, an on-chain money market fund, if it's yield bearing, there's interest there. And now there's, you know, companies that are they're trying to fill that gap. I think some of the problems that we've seen in that space so far is a lot of those launches are walled gardens. And then it's like the value prop isn't really there when like I could go and get access to a traditional mutual fund, like money market fund. And like, there's no difference because I can't interact with or interface with DeFi and it's not, you know, more easily accessible necessarily. And so it almost feels like that is the next phase. Um, and, and that's actually something like we just saw this past week, Mountain Protocol is a, a 
yield-bearing stablecoin launched out of the Bermuda regulatory regime. They just uh, opened a pool on Curve for this token. And so now all of a sudden, you know, could people get access to this yield-bearing stablecoin? You know, maybe there's something there, maybe there isn't. But I'm interested to see you know, what's the uptake of something like that and similar products as we move forward as well. It, it is interesting, right? And the question will be, who has access to it? Are you a U.S. investor? Could you get access to it? Because it might be considered a security. So you may see that some of these things arise offshore from the U.S. perspective where they become more useful. And I, Jack, I love the fact that you brought it back to the, to the yield, right? So a couple of years ago when we saw this rise in DeFi, the, the nominal interest rate environment and the, the real interest rate were very, very low. And as a result of central bank action around the world, you're now seeing higher yields so people can sort of step down the risk curve and still retain some of those earnings. And those people who do see the value of the decentralized nature of the technology and, and prioritize decentralization over the, um, say, scalability or in some cases even the security aspects of it, I, I see security through decentralization. So let me acknowledge that. But they may just view this and say, oh, I want that same type of asset, but I need it to be in this form so that I can actually participate with it. And there may be others who would not have access other than through uh, a, a digital asset environment. So, you know, Parth, you talked about the, the illiquid assets. Some of the things we've talked about before, too, it's not even so much even li- illiquid assets, but assets that have high minimum denominations. And I think about some of the projects we've seen out of Singapore that actually lower the minimum denomination and allow somebody to access um, a, a, an instrument like a bond or something like that where they would not have been able to hold that previously. Like um, bond to value, bond blocks being a couple examples of entities that are building outside the US. Yeah, it's it's also interesting because on one side you have the Onyx platform, which is a permission blockchain, and they have applications on top of that, which is TCN. So that's one example. But on the other side of the spectrum, you have DeFi protocols like Goldfinch, which is a, a marketplace that facilitates uh, bringing on-chain uh, investments through uh, through lending and borrowing. And so one of the biggest innovation for Goldfinch or, or a lot of these protocols like that is creating this on-chain credit history, right, which they are building to onboard more borrowers. And so you can almost see how one side you have to KYC AML, you have to be associated with a financial institution, on the second part is you create your on-chain credit history or your rep- reputation. Jason, I, I know you worked on uh, verifiable credentials in the past, but any any thoughts here? Yeah, so I I, I have a few thoughts. And what I, what I think about is, you know, when I first came into the blockchain space, everyone talked about being trustless. You know, it's an open, trustless technology. It's financial, it's social, it's um, it's an empowerment tool. And because you have gatekeepers like financial institutions that often are the on-ramps for the KYC and AML risks, they, they help and they play a very important function. But when you think about how others who may be interacting in a trustless fashion and you look at wallets and you want to have uh, trust if I'm entering into something that's not a smart contract but some other type of interaction or I want to make sure my transactions don't uh, interact with an OFAC-sanctioned wallet address – um, looking at reputation on chain is very, very important. And you know, coming out of the the global financial crisis, we saw an emphasis on 
using legal entity identifiers or LEIs as a way of informing analysis of who had risk to whom. And I sort of think about wallets as being another implementation of that. But if you could have reputational validation for wallets or you could have entities issuing credentials that this is in fact a, a, a trusted entity that has hit a minimum number of requirements, you might still have a central honeypot that's doing the validation, but for others, uh, they might feel comfortable that they're able to interact in a compliant way. It's almost like a public good, in my opinion. Like if, if you have an immutable, publicly accessible credit history, that can, that can really help reduce transaction costs and build more confidence for, for a traditional finance system. And think about you want to maintain privacy amongst this as well. Well, you could introduce zero knowledge proofs that tie into the credentials associated with a given wallet, and they can be issued by um, they could be issued by governments, they could be issued by other centralized agencies, so that you could realize some of the benefit of the the distributed ledger technology, but also still be um, utilizing good control points that help fight um, nefarious use of the assets. Yeah. I, I do have to say this was a fun uh, TradFi conversation, but before before we leave, I highly, highly recommend people to go look at rwa.xyz and see for yourself because it's a dashboard which tells you which treasuries are tokenized and the dollar amount. And you'll see examples of Ondo Finance, Franklin Templeton as the leaders, but you'll see a bunch of options on how some of these treasuries and where they are being tokenized. Uh, so it's rwa.xyz. It's just a static website. So just again, uh, we talk about do your own research. Part is a great uh, great reference to how people can get more information and, and learn. Uh, we should wrap it up here. Uh, I believe next week uh, we may have Ryan with us. I personally uh, will probably not be here next week. I'm going to visit a son who is studying overseas, so looking forward to that. But um, great to catch up with you guys today. Thanks for an awesome conversation. Crypto as an asset class is highly volatile, can become illiquid at any time, and is for investors with a high risk tolerance. Crypto may also be more susceptible to market manipulation than securities. Crypto is not insured by the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation or the Securities Investor Protection Corporation. Investors in crypto do not benefit from the same regulatory protections applicable to registered securities. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast was produced by the Fidelity Center for Applied Technology also known as FCAT. FCAT does not offer digital assets nor provide clearing or custody of such assets. It is for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide tax, legal, insurance, or investment advice and should not be construed as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation for any security or other asset by any fidelity entity or third party. Views expressed are as of the date indicated based on the information available at the time and may change based on market or other conditions. Unless otherwise noted, the opinions provided are those of the authors and not necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. Fidelity does not assume any duty to update any of the information. Fidelity and any other third parties mentioned in the podcast are independent entities and are not affiliated. Mentioning them does not suggest a recommendation or endorsement by Fidelity. This information is not intended for distribution to or use by any person or entity in any jurisdiction or country where such distribution would or use would be contrary to local law or regulation. Persons accessing this information are required to inform themselves about and observe such restrictions. Third-party trademarks appearing herein are the property of their respective owners. 
All others are the property of FMR LLC. Copyright 2023 FMR LLC. All rights reserved. One zero four zero one five six.